So it's not payment to the Dayan directly for the deen that he is ruling over, but it's a payment. is a payment for, it's compensation for time. More to use a good word, compensation. And now it could be that even in, I don't know how it works in the United Kingdom, but let's say in the United States, that a person who misses work in order to do something. So for example, I'm, I'm not familiar with all the laws of jury duty, but if a person is elected to sit in a jury, they're selected to sit in a jury, then they might be able to get compensation up to a certain amount per day because they're missing work in order to fulfill this duty. And this is a similar idea in Tzachar B'tina. So says Abishem Tukhagin, the Sephardic Dayanim are particular that they don't even take Tzachar B'tina. Even the money they're allowed to take for compensation of their time, they're not willing to take. But there is a custom amongst the Vardim, the Sofer, the one who actually writes the Get, as well as the witnesses of the Get, and it's very interesting why the witnesses of the Get are different than other types of witnesses, they receive what's called Sakhar Tircha. It's a compensation for their going out of their way to do something they don't need to do. So a Sofer, when you write a Get, you need three members of a Bedin. One of those members of the Bedin doesn't have to actually write the get. Who do we often hire to write a get? A sofer. Why do we hire a sofer to write a get? Because they know how to do it? Yeah, they know how to write nicely. They have a contract, they have the paper, they know how to write. And so essentially, the one who writes the get, if they're just a sofer, they're not a dayan, they're, they're writing as a sofer, they're like any other clerk that you would hire for a job, and you have to compensate them for their job. Now, who pays for that? In Sephardic custom, the husband pays for that clerk, and the two witnesses are really there to testify that this was done in the correct fashion. It's not really an edut in the classic sense of testimony. They saw someone get killed, God forbid. It's, again, a position which they don't have to do, but the husband needs two people, so he's able to pay two people to come and verify that this was done. Almost like, if I would have to make it similar... Uh, in the United States, we have someone called a notary. You have certain documents you need notarized. So you pay a notary. They don't have to do this for you. They're doing it for you. It's a service. <clears throat> but the dayanim, the dayanim would never receive compensation for anything they do in the Beit Adin. And therefore, Our Rabbi, Rabbeinu Ovadiyah Bartenua, spoke very harshly about those rabbis that take money to sit in a bedin. The Harav Tosfot Yom Tov and Rabbi Tosfot Yom Tov, he's an Ashkenazi rabbi, Ratsa lehamlitz ba'ad hashama zot v'dochak devarav nirim le'en kol. Says Rabbi Shadov Gagin that Rabbi Tosfot Yom Tov wanted to protect the Ashkenazi custom from the attack of Rabbi Novadiyah Bartanura. He said, but the, the weakness of his words is apparent to anybody who reads them. And lastly, Look in Lahagaon Pachad Yitzchak Lamporonti. Pachad Yitzchak was a Chacham who lived in Italy, if I'm not mistaken. He lived in Italy uh, in the end of the 1600s, maybe even the early 1700s. He was a doctor. He wrote an encyclopedia. Of, I don't know that it was ever finished, but an encyclopedia of different things. He, was a study, he studied at the University of Padua. He was a university-educated doctor. He was a Chacham of world-class Chacham. And in his encyclopedia, Pachad Yitzchak, he writes, <coughs> There was one rabbi, a Sephardic rabbi, who allowed for an Ashkenazi man and an Ashkenazi woman to get married in his community. And you'll find some very um, hair-raising words there. And Kadosh uh, Baruch should forgive us for our sins. We're going to now look at all of these sources inside. But this is what Rabbi Shem Dov Gagim says. <clears throat> it's almost like he's being more cryptic than he usually would be. So I'm coming today to unpack everything that he wrote here. I want to look at all of those sources with you. And I ask that you go with me in an organized fashion through these sources. And I think we'll be able to come to the conclusion of what Rabbi Shem Dov Gagim is trying to say when it comes to Dayanut and Bateidin and rabbis and the issue of taking money and compensation for the things they do. How Rabbi Shem Dov Gagim felt about this uh, this thing. So let's take out the source sheet. If you have it in your Google Classroom, it'll be one of the links that says Expanding Horizons. 
and the expanding horizons Evan Hazel. All right. I am going to be all the way towards the end. I'll tell you the exact paragraph in just a moment. Source 15. Source 15. So if you look at me at the source sheet, source 15, that should be a Mishnah from Bechorot. Is that what you see? Wonderful. Says the Mishnah in Masechet Bechorot. Hanotel sechorot ladun. One who takes money in order to judge. Dinav betelim. His rulings are void. They're nullified. Lehaid. Someone who takes money in order to testify in the bedin. Eduto betelim. His testimonies are void. Lehazot ud kadesh. Someone who takes wages in order to sprinkle the ashes of the red heifer. Memav ul kadesh. What is ul kadesh? To sanctify the waters of the. Red heifer. So there's two different jobs. There's the sprinkling and the sanctification. The water loses its status of sanctity. It's just like any other water you'll find in a cave. And his ashes are not red heifer ashes. The ashes, they work just like regular burnt ashes from the end of a cigarette you'd find. That's the same thing as ashes. Nothing special to them. The moment one takes money for performing one of those actions, it loses all of its status in halakha. Okay, this is really not relevant to us as part of the Mishnah. Let's skip to section 16, 17, where the Rambam rules in 17 in the Mishnah Torah. Rambam says the following. Call Dayan, every Dayan, who takes money in order to preside over a court case. So any Dayan, that's what he says. This is his Dinav Betelim, like the Mishnah, his rulings are void. And that's as long as the payment is not apparent. But if he was working, like I said, as a car mechanic in his shop, and two said, hey, Rabbi, we need you to judge, preside over our case. Go find me somebody who can work for me. Meaning, you go pay somebody to replace me in my shop. I have some clients. I have to finish their cars by 5 o'clock today. If you can find another mechanic to do my job, or compensate me for the amount of time that I'm going to be losing here, this is permissible. I mean, there's an exception to the first rule of the Rambam. And there's a great question why the Rambam says, all it's forbidden, and then he gives an exception afterwards. But there's a condition here. And that condition is, the money that he takes for compensation from his work cannot be more than what he would actually make while he's working. So you can't say, oh, I bill $90 an hour, but here, pay me $500 for the two hours. He can't do that anymore. It has to be exactly the dollar, the cent amount of how much he would lose by coming to judge your case. Vitol mishnehem b'shaveh and he has to take equally from both of them. So one can't pay more than the other one. And it has to be done in front of both of them. They should both see exactly how much the other one is paying. In this case, this is permissible. Now Maran rules in the Shulchan Aruch the same thing. Look in Halakha 18 in the Shulchan Aruch. One who takes money to judge. All the judgments that he ruled are void. Unless you know that he didn't take payment. And if he takes compensation for the hours that he didn't work, it's mutal. But it has to be known to all that he is taking money only for what he's losing and not to make money. Like he's known for a certain trade. And he works from 9 to 5, and you're coming to him in that window of time, 
that he works. So if you go to the rabbi who's a car mechanic after 5 o'clock when he closes his store, he can't take money because he doesn't work then. The schar betela doesn't work. And he has to accept that money from them equally. But if it's not known, if the rabbi doesn't work in that type of profession that he gets paid every hour, rather, he owns a store. Yeah, manager store. He has some produce. It could be that people will buy from me X amount of apples or oranges or potatoes or iPhones or whatever he's selling. It's a, it could be that I'll make sales. You have to pay me for the sales that I could make. He can't do that because that's not, that's not the same as someone who actually is making money per hour that you can now compensate him for the time that you took away from him. So let's just summarize very quickly. Are Dayanim allowed to take money? No. With which exception? A Dayan who, one, has a job. Listen carefully, the Dayan has to have a job. So he can't say, I don't work at all because I have to be a Dayan. That, that doesn't cut it. You can't say, I don't work because I, you don't have a job. Meaning, I can't be a car mechanic. So I can't bill you that oh, if I wasn't judging here, then I would be a car mechanic. I just can't, it doesn't work that way. So one, he has to have a profession. Two, you have to come to him in the time that he is usually working in his profession. You have to pay him only the exact amount of money that he would lose by engaging in your dean process. Both parties have to pay equal amounts and they have to pay them in front of each other so it's apparent to everybody that this is an equal arrangement. But just on top of your head, what would be the problem of one person saying, don't worry, I'll cover the rabbi? What's the, what's the problem with that? Well, maybe, say? Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he's just saying that. Well, maybe he said, maybe he, I don't mind, I'll cover the rabbi. Why not? If he really wants to do it, he has more money than the other guy. He's okay paying the legal fees. That's not fair on the judgment. Like, it'll make him go towards him. Perhaps. Very good. Oh, it, it could create... It could create a bias as it goes into the laws of shochad, of bribery. It has to be equal. It has to be in front of each other. They both have to know exactly what the other one is paying. And that's how this case can still stay fair. And we don't reach a conclusion where dinav betelim, that his rulings are null and void. Let's talk about Rabbeinu Ovadiyah Bartenua and this Mishnah that says that a judge cannot take money. Let's read his words together. And like I told you at the beginning, I'm reading these words, he wrote them. We'll do with them what we need to do so. It's written in Devarim. I'm in source 19. The Torah tells us that Moshe Rabbeinu says, I'm teaching to you laws the way HaKadosh Baruch taught me laws. Just like he taught me them for free, so too, I must teach them to you for free. Let's pause right there. The source of this teaching is a Gemara. Let's show you here. If you scroll down to source 21, this is the Pasuk. I have taught you the laws, the rules, that the way HaKadosh Baruch Hu has taught them to me. So that you can follow those laws in the land of Israel when you arrive there and you settle it. The Gemara in Masechet Bechorot says the following, source 22. Just like I, Kadosh Baruch Hu, taught Torah to me for free, I will teach you Torah for free. Look in source 23. The halakha is also taught in Beraita. Just like a Kadosh Bahu taught me the halakha for free, I must teach it to you for free. And from where do you learn that if someone cannot find someone to teach you Torah for free, then you can even teach by giving payment? It says that you should buy the truth. Just like 
ככה למדנה בשכר, תמול לומר, אמת כנה ואל תמכור. Maybe you could say, look, just like this guy paying me to teach, I can charge other people to teach. No, you can't do that. It says that you could buy Torah, but you can't sell your Torah. You're not allowed to do such a thing. There should be no difference between the written Torah, the oral Torah, all Torah must be taught for free. This is the teaching that Rabbeinu Vadeam Barthanura is trying to start himself off in source 19. Let's jump back to source 19 and read from where he left off. There is a rabbinic precedent that we don't take money, just like a Kadosh Bokhu didn't charge money, then also we don't charge other people money to teach them Torah. I can tell you that in my whole life I studied Torah from Arab I just spoke with him last night at 1 o'clock in the morning, my time, and I drove him nuts about something else. And I'll tell you how much money I've paid Arab in my life. Nothing. Ever. Not a penny, not a dollar, not a anything. It doesn't work that way. I learned Torah from him my whole life. I plan to learn Torah from him my whole life. And just like I learned Torah from him that way, that's the way that I wish to teach Torah to other people. This is Rabbeinu Ba'adam Ba'atanua is writing here. Ashkenaz. And among the Ashkenazi rabbis, we're in source 19. Sharuya is a very harsh word. I saw a scandal in this matter. It's, it's worse, this guy. Sharuya is like a... Let's call it a scandal. The rabbi who is ordained, rabbi who is a Rosh Hashima, is not embarrassed to take 10 gold coins for the 30 minutes that he has to spend writing and giving a get. And the witnesses that sign on the get, they make two gold coins. Or at least they each get one gold coin. It's two in total. So it costs 12 gold coins to get a get in Ashkenaz. And says Rabbi This man in my eyes is not a rabbi. He's a thief. And a anas is a person who forcefully steals money from other people. If I can explain, the word anas also is used in Hebrew when a man rapes a woman. He's an anas. He takes something forcefully that does not belong to him. I mean, this man is not a rabbi. In my eyes, he's a gazlan and he's an anas. By the way, a gazlan is not a regular thief. Ganav is a thief. What is a gazlan? The difference between a ganav and a gazlan, what's the difference? They both steal from people. They do it in public. He does it in public. Very good. A thief, he has derch eretz. What does it mean derch eretz? He doesn't have yirat shamayim. He's not afraid of God. But he's afraid of other people. He doesn't want to get caught. So he breaks into people's houses in the middle of the night. When it's dark outside, that's a thief. It's an incorrect translation. A gazlan, Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar was using the word gazlan intentionally. A gazlan is somebody who does, commits an act of stealing in broad daylight. A robber. A bank robber. Doesn't care. Walks in with a gun. Takes money. Runs out. This is what this rabbi is called. He's not even a thief. It's not under the table. He charges money for his rabbinic services. Because he knows. He knows that in his city, he has a monopoly on the get industry. And that you're not able to get a get from any other rabbi aside from him. And because he has a monopoly, he's not afraid to charge money because nobody can undercut him. Maybe we'll talk more about undercutting of the rabbinic industry later. And it's not fair, but the one who has to give a get, he must give money to this rabbi. Everything the rabbi wants, he has to do, because the rabbi holds all the power in making sure whether or not this man can give his wife a get. Says I'm concerned that perhaps this get is not even a kasher get, it's pasul. Because we already were taught in the Mishnah. We were already taught explicitly in the Mishnah that somebody who takes money for judgment or for testifying, 
that their judgment and their testimony is null and void. And this rabbi doesn't fall under the exception of being a car mechanic, because he's nismach, he's ordained. His job is to give gitin, he's a rosha yeshiva, that's what he does for a living. Meaning, he already doesn't have a profession with which, oh, I'm losing two hours in the yeshiva learning, so I'm going to come give a get, now you have to pay me for my time. He's charging 10 gold coins for one get. Two extra gold coins for the witnesses. Maybe four for the witnesses. says This is thievery. And worse than that, I'm not even sure the get is kasher. When you say that I'm not sure a get is kasher, what are you really saying? What happens if a get is not kasher? Problems. Major problems. What kind of major problems? Mamzerin. Who can fix Mamzerin? Nobody. Again, the whole industry of Gitin that I'm witnessing in Ashkenaz, says Rabbeinu Vadiya, can cause problems of legitimacy in children. Maybe those Gitin are not kasher. Maybe all of these people, we think that they're able to be married. We can't marry them. So I'm very concerned about the state of affairs among the rabbis in Ashkenaz. Rabbeinu Vadiya, it's a scathing rebuke on Chachmei Ashkenaz. It doesn't go unanswered, by the way. This Tana uh, is going to be answered right now by the Baal Tosfot Yom Tov. I believe his name was Rabbi Yom Tov Lit Min Heller, if I'm not mistaken, the author of the Tosfot Yom Tov. I won't read to everything he writes. But he says... He quotes, he's quoting what uh, Rabbi Nevada writes. And somewhere like, I, I can't tell you how many lines because I'm using a different uh, device than you are. But somewhere he says, Moshe And our Rabbi the Ramah, in his notes to Shulchan Aruch, Ezer, chapter 154, Katav Alav, he writes about this, that it doesn't matter. The difference why rabbis and Ashkenaz can charge for gitin is that gitin, it's not really a matter of din, it's not judgment as in a bedin between two people. Rather, it's just something that you learn, it's a trade. Writing gitin is, is a skill, it's not a din. And because the witnesses, if they mess up the get, we charge them money for messing up the get. They're allowed to take money. And the other reason why the witnesses can take money is because the witnesses on a get are not allowed to marry the woman who is getting divorced. They're penalized for marrying her. And because of that, they're getting money because they're losing something by doing this. Now he keeps writing more and more. Um, Let me skip down much further. Yeah. And we have seen, if you find that word, that all of the rabbis of the Jewish people, Kodem Zeman Rabenu, before the Rambam, the Rambam who wrote that it's forbidden to take money. All of them have a custom to take money from the community. Meaning, all the rabbis already have this custom. And even if we agree, that this is true, that you can't take money. It could be that all the rabbis of the generations agreed, it was such a hard decision to make, they all agreed to take money. Why did they sacrifice their integrity to take money? Because there's a concern. What does it say? When Judaism is in danger, then you can even break the Torah to preserve Judaism. It's a rabbinic law that is used in a number of places. And here, that if the parnasav, those who study Torah and teach Torah, was not available, it was a field that didn't have parnasav, they would not be able to study Torah properly. And if the rabbis are not fed well, they're not paid well, then the Torah will be forgotten, God forbid. 
And because they have a parnasah, they're able to learn Torah, and they're able to focus their time and their energy on making the Torah greater. So aside from the halachic back and forth, what is the Toshot Om Tov? Last statement. Let's say that the Rambam is right. Let's say Rabbeinu Vadam Bartonur are right. That you can't take money to, for deen. But there was an agreement, a consensus among Chachmei Israel of all the generations. That they took money for which reason? By the way, this is slander against Chachmei Israel. It's not true. But let's say that it is true. In the goodness of their heart, they had no choice but to take money because if they didn't, the Torah would become forgotten. They took money to save the Jewish people. I spoke once with a Dayan on a Bet Adin of Giyu. I said, tell me something. I understand. You want to charge a girl for converting to Judaism. You have a rent a mikveh. You have to heat up the water in the mikveh. You've got to take a day. Fine. How much does it cost you? $200? $300? But why did you charge them $17,000? You know what this rabbi told me? We charge them to show... How they should show us how sincere they are that they want to convert. If they weren't, this is how we vet out, we weed out the people that are not sincere. I said, wonderful. And after they finish the deen, you give them back the money because now you vetted them, right? You give them back the money? No, what do you mean? That's, who, that's crazy. Uh, I understand. So please don't lie to us that the reason why you take money from people is to keep the Jewish people safe. It's, it's really, it's not. You're not vetting anybody. You're making sure that you can pay your bills very well and that's fine. You're allowed to do that. But... Don't, don't lie to us, please. It hurts us. There's a statement here. We're taking money because we have to save the Torah. And there's no choice. We have to take money to save it. If, if we don't take money, then who's going to pay for the Jewish people to study and to learn and to teach? And I would argue and say, so what about all the Chachamim who didn't take money? What about the Chachamim who didn't charge? So what happened? They all died? They didn't give us Torah? The Rambam didn't give us Torah? The Rif didn't give us a Torah? Marana Shuchan Ruch didn't give us a Torah? What, all of them, they forgot that they needed to take money to keep the Torah alive? It's, it's a statement, but this is the justification, the rationale that is given behind why the rabbinate, the world of Dayanim and Bateidin, all revolve around money. Because they have to. Because they have no choice. Because they need to. For your sake, they have to take money. Any questions? I, I'm not, I can't read the screen from here. Sorry, I was just asking, what are the parameters of transgressing the Torah for the sake of the Torah? Though? Because oh, if this lies sometimes, then how do we argue that this isn't a good example of that? Betsy, that is a wonderful rabbit hole that you want to jump down into, of figuring out when you're allowed to break the Torah in order to keep the Torah. It's almost counterintuitive, you understand? It's, it's almost like, in order to keep the Torah, we have to break it. Now, it's a rule. Our rabbis use it. Uh, the writing of the Mishnah, for example, perhaps was a, a violation of writing the oral law. I would argue that, and I, I'm not familiar you know, with all the details surrounding when we make such a decision. It's something worth looking into. But I can say for right now that if this is a Sanhedrin that's getting together and deciding something needs to be changed in order to preserve the Jewish people, the Sanhedrin would have the power to do such a thing. It could even be that if a, a large group of Chachamim sat down on a consensus in a certain country, they were absolute controllers of Halakha in that place, and they functioned similar to a Bedin Hagadon, maybe. But just every person on their own saying, we have to save the Jewish people, so we're going to break the Torah, it's a very, very, it's not just a slippery slope. It itself is very dangerous. So it's not that what will happen in the future. That action itself is very dangerous. I'm, I'm interested in looking into it more, so if you could remind me after the shiur, I will make some time to try to look into it. That's a very good question. Let's, let's read some, another source I wanted to read to you here. Source 25. This is a Gemara in Masechet Yomah, but it originally comes from Sanhedrin. So I, I brought it here from Yomah because for whatever reason, Safaria has vowels and punctuation in Yomah, but not in Sanhedrin. So, the origin of this, though, you could look up in Sanhedrin. Let's look here in Source 25. Skip a few lines. Where it says, Rav. Rav. Ki hava nafek lemedan dina. When Rava would leave his home to go serve on the Betadin, Amal hache, this is what he would say. 
בצבו נפשי לקטל הנפק, וצבו ביתי אלת ועבד, ורקן לביתי אזן, ולוואי שתהא ביאה כי יציאה. This is the prayer, the statement that Rav would say when he would leave his home. He says, of his own will, he's talking about himself, he goes to die. And he does not fulfill the will of his household. And he goes empty-handed to his household. And if only his entrance would be like his exit. He's talking about himself. I'm right now going to sit on a din. And a bedin. In this bedin, I'm going to make judgments that could make me liable for the death penalty. If I misjudge, it will be my fault. And I'm leaving to my death because that's really what's going to happen if I mess up. And I will come back home with nothing in my hand because I don't get money for risking my life sitting in a bedin. And if only I could enter my home again with as many mitzvot as I had when I left my home. This is the prayer of Rav before he went to judge. Rava has a similar prayer. It's, the Gemara continues. Rava, when he would leave his home, would say the same thing. And if only my entrance, re-entrance to my home will be as righteous as when I exited it. You find here that our rabbis in the Gemara, they lived this law. They did not take money for din. And it didn't for one moment, for one moment go unnoticed to them that they are risking their life almost in a way that is, is not worth it for them. It's not worth it. But Rabbi Chaim David Hanavi, he quotes this Gemara and he says, really, so the Dayan should have no interest to go be a Dayan. Meaning if it's just a responsibility and there's nothing out of it, why would somebody want to be a Dayan? It's too dangerous. Rabbi Chaim Tebin Hadavi quotes another Gemara that says, Shema yomar hadayan mali v'latzara hazot. A Dayan might say, why do I need these troubles in my life? Why do I have to risk my life to sit in a Bedin? Talmud omar v'yimachem b'dvar mishpat. That Akadosh Baruch Hu says, I am with you when you judge law. And the Dayan, a Dayan is only responsible for what his eyes, his intellect is able to perceive. Meaning, Akadosh Baruch Hu is there with you. You have to do your part, I will do my part, says Akadosh Baruch Hu. Please don't hold back from helping my people because you're too afraid to help my people. I didn't want to read to you that Pachad Yitzchak because really I'm not sure how it's so connected to this conversation. Aside from, aside from, anyway, if you want, let's open it up. If you open up the Google Classroom invitation and you click on where it says Pachad Yitzchak Lampronti. And it's in the top right of that very old PDF. So this is like a printing from Venice of many, many years ago. In this encyclopedia, it's a category Orchim. And he tells a story about Rabbi Rafael Modeliago. His name is spelled in different ways. Rabbi Rafael Modeliago is a rabbi who lived in the early half of the 1600s. He was a rabbi in, not in Italy, he was a rabbi in um, um, Saloniki, in Greece. And in his Betadin, he had two people that came through. One was an Ashkenazi man and an Ashkenazi woman. And they wanted to get married. Now he says the law is that we don't marry each other, Ochim, guests. We should not allow them to marry each other. We don't allow guests to come get married in our communities. Unless they have clear testimonies that they're single, they're Jewish, all the things we need to know. Unless they have proof, documentation, we shouldn't allow them to get married in our communities. Not to us, to each other. Meaning, a rabbi shouldn't officiate a wedding of two people they don't know. But I'm very particular about this. I do not, the number of phone calls that I get, can you marry me here? If I wanted to accept all the offers to do weddings, I could have traveled the world already, seen all kinds of wonderful places. I'm not willing to marry people that I don't know personally. At least one of them. At least one of them has to be somebody that I know well. My students, I always will stand there and marry It's a, it's a liability. You don't know what's going to happen with this marriage. You don't know where they're going to get a get if they need to get a get. You know. 
I don't need the headache. There are other rabbis that really like the honor of, of traveling and, and doing weddings and they get paid a few hundred bucks under the table. Then I, I leave all the kavod for them. I'll come to a wedding. I, unless it's somebody, like I said, that I know. If you're here, by the way, I consider you somebody that I know. So don't, don't be afraid. Yes. Here. He says, said, so I heard that there were people that were upset at him. This is in the early 1600s. That he allowed an Ashkenazi man to marry an Ashkenazi woman in his community without taking proper testimony. That they're both single. What ended up happening here is that there seems to have been an industry in Ashkenaz to take money to testify for whatever you need me to testify for. And it became a thing, at least in this century, in the Sephardic world, that they were very wary to trust Ashkenazi witnesses. Because when they came from Ashkenaz to Sephardic countries, they were getting payment to testify in court. And that they knew that their testimony could not be relied on. And it seems like what happened there, that an Ashkenazi man married a woman who was already married. But she had a witnesses that they paid well to come and say that she was single. New place, start life over. What Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, in my opinion, is trying to show from this is the moment we allow money into the story, corruption becomes everywhere. Even by regular people. Start with the rabbis, dining, everybody. Now payment is a thing. And then what happens? What happens is the whole world falls apart. Judaism falls apart. And Chachamim were very upset about this. Now, in order not to be so harsh on Ashkenazim, I brought a teaching from Rav Peretz that I'm attaching. Be Hashem Tov Gagin didn't know of this book yet. And if it's okay, it's very rare that I read to you directly from the writings of Rav Peretz. But um, this book of Rav Peretz, I met Yosher Vatzedek. He just asked me to speak in an Israeli convention. The world of academia has been doing a lot of research in the last years of Chachmei Sfarad. They're looking into the lives of the Sephardic rabbis and they're teaching them. It's a blessed endeavor. What they realized in all these years of research, they've never researched Sephardic rabbis who lived in Israel after the founding of the State of Israel, and what the influence of meeting other rabbis from other cultures, if it affected or didn't affect their Torah, how Judaism, Sephardic Judaism developed once they came to the land of Israel. And they put out a list of rabbis. It's a request that academics should please research a whole list of rabbis who are Sephardic-born but were educated in Israel, or raised in Israel, or were teaching in Israel. And Professor Tzvi Zohar, should live and be well. He's a very chaviv person, a very special man. And he sent me this kol kole because the, on the paper was the name of Harav Yaakov Peretz. And it says, we need someone who could research him. Now, I know Harav Peretz. Harav Peretz um, doesn't like to be researched, doesn't care much to be researched, doesn't need uh, to research anything. Uh, but... I figured I'm going to brave the storm and try to ask him if he, I have his permission to speak about him. And when I called him, Peretz told me, do you want to know my whole philosophy in three words? So look at the title of this book. Hayemet, the truth, Yoshel, straightforwardness, v'tzedek, and justice, righteousness. I don't want to live for anything else. My whole life is only for this. Just for the truth, nothing else for righteousness. I don't... Other philosophy, I don't care. He said, and he said one more thing that's not on the title of the book. He said to stop hating human beings. Loli That was his word. Says, my, one of my greatest values in life is not to hate human beings. To love and appreciate every human being that is on earth. Uh, so from this book, in the back of this book, once I visited Harav Peretz and Purim, maybe in the year 2010, 2011, I was by his home on Purim. And he was just walking out of his house. I, have, I, I wanted to sit with you. He's like, I have to go give a class. I said, okay. So tell me something. He said, Rabbi Yonatan, this book that I printed, he said, all the Torah that I've taught in my life and all the mitzvot that I did in my life, when I go to the Bedin Shemala after 120 years, I'm not sure they're going to accept any of it. He said, but when I show them this book that I wrote, he said, they're going to let me straight into Gan Eden. That I'm sure about. And I'm reading to you from the back of this book, which is all about Emet. A story. A story that he quotes from an Ashkenazi rabbi. It's on page, uh, it's, it's on the second page of your PDF, but it's page 414 in my PDFs.
Let's read two. Rabbi Yudah ben Atar. Rabbi Yudah ben Atar was the rabbi of Fez in Morocco. Look in Dalit. Ish emuna v'tzedek v'lo nehena ma'acharim. Rabbi Yudah said, you want to summarize his life? He was a righteous man who did not take benefit from other people. Katav alav agon chida. The chida writes in his encyclopedia, Shem HaGadolim. Rabbi Yudah Yosef David Azulai. Shamati mirav achad. I heard from one rabbi. Sherbi Yudah ben Atar. The Rabbi Yudah, the son of Atar, the tzal, haya sodet nekiyah, was clean. Hu haya melumad benisim. He was able to perform miracles. And I heard from the holy rabbis, the elders of Morocco. He was a godly, saintly man, and he never received benefit from the Torah. And he never took any financial gain from the kupa, from the, the funds of the community. And they would use his name, they would swear on his name. And whoever falsely swore with his name would die. And there's a book, Malkir Rabbanan, that says, There's a story about a non-Jewish man. That was a business partner with a Jewish man. And he trusted him. And in the last deal, the non-Jew gave the Jewish man a tremendous sum of money. Without any contract. He trusted him. He didn't want to write a contract with him. By the way, in general rule in life, make contracts with people that you like. Because the people you don't like, it's okay to sue them in court your whole life. It's fine. But the people that you like, the ones you think you don't need a contract, those are the people you don't want to be fighting with court, in court with your whole life. And because the Jew knew that there was no contract, he said, ah, I, you didn't give me any money. I don't owe you anything. And here the Jew... Likely he's dealing with an Arab, a Muslim man. And he's cheating him out of his money. This non-Jew said, swear to me in the name of the tzaddik Ibu Dabin Atal. This was the case in many Sephardic countries that the Muslims believed in the tzaddikut, the righteousness of our Khamim also. And that's what he did. And the Jew was so thrilled that he was now wealthy. He went to his home, and he made a meal for all of his relatives. And in the middle of the meal, he went to his winery, wine cellar, to go fill up the wine pitchers. And he had a candle. And there was some flammable liquid in that uh, cellar. And the whole cellar burned with him inside. And this Muslim man heard everything that happened to this Jew. And he was so happy. And he brought money, a gift to give to Rabbi Yudah ben Atar. And he bowed down in front of Rabbi ben Atar. He told him the story. But the rabbi said, I don't take money. Please don't give me anything. This, uh, even then he didn't want to take money. And in the book Nachalat Avot of Rabbi Yosef Nasas, Shirbi Udahanal, that Rabbi Udah, Lo Nehena Kapo, he only enjoyed money that he gained in his own work. He was a gold, um, um, he worked with gold. And every morning he would go work for a little bit. And as long, once he had the money for that day, and then as soon as he had enough money that he needed for that day from his profession, he went to go study Torah and teach Torah and do whatever else he needed because he didn't need anyone's money and he was able to take care of himself. It's not only by the Sephardic rabbis. There's another rabbi. I tried researching him. It's very difficult for me to find information about him. If you can find information about him, I'd be very grateful to you for finding information. Rabbeinu Berachia Berbi Yakim Getzel Rabbeinu Brachia, the son of Eliakim Getzel, he wrote a book, Zera Barach Shlishi, and he writes the following, in Hay, at the bottom of the page, Kodem HaMishpat, Manashim Shesarim LeMishmatam, Tochal HaRabanim Shemekabim Matanot, this is a rebuke, he writes, for rabbis who accept gifts from people, Kodem HaMishpat, Manashim Shesarim LeMishmatam, before their judgment. There are some rabbis who pray that there should be fighting between people. Why? So that they should have to come and arbitrate in judgment. They'll bring them gifts. By the way, there's a bit of the that I'm familiar with. 
that to go and have the rabbis arbitrate between you, it's a starting fee of $600 per party just to come in front of the Bedadin. So think about it. These rabbis, they like when people fight because no matter what they rule, they're always going to get paid. And then in one of the Bedadin, they even take a percentage of whatever the person gets and the rabbis take back a percentage for themselves. That even if a rabbi can find a way to get paid, he can get paid more than the schal betila that he, he lost. And only a loss that you could prove. Like we've already studied. Skip a few lines down after those little parentheses. And it's, I'm allowed to speak about this rebuke. Because forever, from the day that I stood on my judgment, meaning when I matured as an adult, I never took one peruta, one penny for being a judge. And I judged always for free. Like my God commanded me to. And those rabbis who they accept gifts of bribery, I am certain that they are not given from HaKadosh Baruch the ability to study Torah in a truth fashion. And he says some pretty harsh things. So there's an angel that's called Riv, a fighting. And when rabbis take money, then HaKadosh Baruch does not allow them to study the Torah in truth. This rabbi... Ben Eliakim Getzel tells us the following story. That in the days of Agon Rabbi Heshel, Ab Bedin de Krakow, the Rabbi Heshel was the head of the Bedin of Krakow, two people came before them in judgment. And they were suing each other for some thousands of whatever the currency was. And he brought him a hundred coins of whatever currency that was. Before the court case, one of the sides came and paid the rabbi. And he put them on the table and said, please help me out in judgment. And Rabbi Heshel of Krakow said, I will not accept uh, uh, All I wish to do is to find out who is innocent and who is guilty. I don't want your money. Rabbi Heshel The merchant says, I, Rabbi, I don't want you to take a bribe from me. All I want is you should come to the truth. But let me give you a gift anyways. And I'll grease the wheels in the bedin a little. will help cover whatever. I'm giving a donation. Rabbi Heshel, Rabbi Heshel took the coins and gave him. Then he said, I'll do everything for you. Come back to me tomorrow for judgment. He said to his wife, make a celebration at home for all my sons and my daughters and my sons-in-law and my family. After his whole family ate and drank, he took out these hundred coins and he began to count them. One, two, three, four, till he counted a hundred coins. And they were so happy, his whole family was happy. They thought they're getting, you know, Hanukkah guilt. They're getting here money from, the, from their father, from their father-in-law. He took all of them and put them back. And he says, you should know, I brought you here. You should learn from me and follow in my footsteps. That you should not look for gifts for money when you become dayanim over the Jewish people. Tomorrow, I'm giving this man back all of his money. And I, God forbid that I would sell my soul even for a thousand coins. Here you understand a few things. Says Rav Peretz that one, a hundred coins was worth a lot of money. He's saying, I wouldn't even sell my soul for a thousand coins. And the second, that his family clearly needed money. They were all happy to see money. But he says, I'm making a celebration. The celebration is to show you the value of not taking money from other people. My grandfather, I love Shalom, my mother's father, uh, he was a, had a, a job, a regular job in Israel. I mean, it wasn't regular. He was a wealthy man in Morocco. He came to Israel. He worked other jobs that probably he wouldn't have worked in if he would have stayed in Morocco. 
but he would always volunteer to be a shomer when a body, someone would pass away, to stay with the body overnight and to pray next to the body to make sure the body wasn't alone. And they would always want to pay. It doesn't take money. He used to go straight. He would come home from work. He would eat. He'd go to the sit with the body. After that, he would leave. He would pray shacharit and he'd go back to work without sleeping. He refused to take money. It's I don't take money from, from people for doing mitzvot. My father's father had this, had, still exists, the synagogue, but had a synagogue in Kiryat Atta in Israel. I remember they would auction off aliyot, uh, five shekels, six shekels, seven shekels, nothing real. Uh, it was just to cover the air conditioning and the lights and whatever else, but he never took a penny. And the Beda Knesset was built on his land. It was He owned the land, it was his. He never took a penny from what he did in the Beda Knesset. <clears throat> There's a world in which Torah could look beautiful, but it doesn't. When we started our Betadin here in California, Harapelos was very particular that we should find a few character traits among Dayanim. And if you need to go, it's okay. I'm, this is something personal I'm sharing. I'm not sure that I'll leave it in the recording. I, I was sitting in the Harapelos' Betadin in Israel, and we'd have to travel, and every time a person wanted to convert, of course Harapelos is in charge, but it costs money, like $1,000, $2,000 to get from San Diego to Israel. At a certain point, I said, listen, you know the halakhot, you have to start your own betadin. So, that's what we did. And I said, so who should sit with me on the betadin? He said, you know, there's a few character traits you need. One, someone who's a tamid chacham. So somebody who knows Torah, what's the definition of tamid chacham for him? So somebody that if you're a piskedin, if you're a gerim, you're, they were ever criticized or attacked by somebody else, every one of the rabbis in your betadin should be able to author a teshuvah, should be able to hold their weight in halakha, independently of you. Just everyone on their own has to be a person on two. They should be in good standing with their kilo. They should have something they do so they're in good standing. Three, they should hate money. They should hate money. So not just that they shouldn't take money for their deen, but they shouldn't want to take money for their deen. You should know that it was very easy for me. As hard as it is to find Tamadei Chalamim out in the Wild West, it was easy for me to find rabbis. Rabbis that could write Teshuvot, a little bit harder. Just to find a rabbi with Tamecham, that's a harder. The third, though, a rabbi who hated money. There was a period of almost two years where the Rabbanit and I could not find a third rabbi. Our third rabbi had left. We couldn't find a third rabbi. Every single rabbi that we approached, who we trusted, we knew, and they were good people. All of them were good people. They were so used to taking money for things that in their mind, one rabbi said, all I'm asking for is $150. I said, you're willing to go through this whole thing and lose everything for $150. I'll pay you $150. But why do you? No, because the gerim, they have to know that it costs. The, I said, I'm sorry, we don't need an abetadin. Until we found our third. Baruch Hashem, Rabbi Moshe ben Zaken, Rabbi Yosef Zanigian, we sit together in abetadin. And I can tell that in the years that we've been doing you, we've brought dozens of people. You don't know what it feels like when you stand outside of a mikveh and you see someone coming out. They entered not as a Jewish person. And they come out with a neshama of a Jewish person. You give them a name. The whole family is there to celebrate with them. And you walk away without one penny being exchanged in this whole encounter. Can people donate? Of course. You know how they donate? And they get to donate to the next person who goes to the mikveh. So you can't donate to us for a view. What you can do, you can donate money. That money is going to help somebody buy tefillin. Because the next person converting, maybe they can't afford tefillin. So the bedin will buy them tefillin from the fund that we've received from people beforehand. If we have to bring in a Dayan across the country, then instead of asking the couple, the last couple who donated for the Dayan fund, that, but for us, we walk away with nothing. With nothing. I did the math. <clears throat> There's a Betadin in Los Angeles. I want to sit with you and do some math. To convert in the Betadin, from beginning to end, costs between twelve and $15,000. So let's go on the higher end, because the last few people that went there, they paid $15,000. So... You keep the number 15,000. On top of that, I'm just pulling out my calculator. On top of that, in order to, there should be a calculator here, no? Okay, I don't know. Khaver, uh, someone has a calculator? Do the math for me. On top of this, you have to take classes for 18 months at $250 a month. That's how much the classes cost. But it's pretty cheap because the other betadin charges 
$100 a week for classes. But let's say this rabbi is pretty um, uh, relaxed. It's only $250 a month for 18 months. So what is 250 times 18? 4500 um, That's not including the $350 fee for doing the wedding at the end, nor the fee for the ketubah. He brings a wedding cake. You have to pay for that wedding cake also. And now let's do So I, we said 4500 4, So that's 19850 right, so, now, how many people does he have in his Giyur program in a given time? The last person who went to the program, there were between 50 and 60 Girim in the program. So let's say 50, 50 Girim. So 50 times 19,850. Someone give me a number, because my calculator, I can't find it on my... Uh, my father would be... 1, 5... Wait, Betsy, what was the number? 15,000 plus 4,500 plus the 350 plus... Round it. Make it $20,000. Make it $20,000. $20,000 times 50. 5-0. Yeah, more. asked for 50. 50 people. 50 and 60 people. So go and low. 50 people. A million dollars. A million dollars? Yeah. Every 18 months. Maybe now you can understand why there are rabbis who don't like when other rabbis undercut them. Because they have a monopoly. Because here's how it works. There's a group like the chief rabbinate or like any other famous betadin you're familiar with. That they are the only ones whose giurim are approved. By which right do they have only one conversion that is approved? There's no halachic right. You're not a Sanhedrin. You're just a betadin. Even the chief rabbinate of Israel is just a group of rabbis. They have no halachic uh, authority over Judaism. There is no pope in Rome. We don't have a Vatican. There, there is no Sanhedrin yet. So you're just a bigger group of rabbis than perhaps another group of rabbis. And what gets you upset? It makes you upset that there are other people that are undercutting your million dollar a year venture. It makes you upset that someone else can do a deal for zero dollars. Of course it makes you upset. Because how are you going to pay your mortgage on your three houses you bought? How are you going to pay for all your kids' weddings in that fancy wedding hall? That you How are you going to do it? You can do it. Because there are certain people that are thorns in your side that are getting in your way. And it fascinates me to see a Jewish community who time after time after time again always stands up to support who? The rabbis who literally steal from the Jewish community. Those are the rabbis they support. Instead of those who really do what they can. I'm not even talking about myself. But Hashem, we're okay. I'm not, nobody's hurting here. But there are dozens of Batedin that I'm familiar with who work only in the Shem Shemayim. We all have jobs. I have a job. Other rabbis have jobs. We, Baal Hashem, we do what we do. For Dayanut, for sitting on a Batedin. And you can argue Giyur is not a real Deen and that I've seen all the arguments in the world. At the end of the day, imagine what happens when the first thing that you tell a non-Jewish person, oh, you want to be Jewish? I'll tell you a story. In Texas, a group of people came to convert. I know them because they learned the Shiviti Bet and they came to convert, not by me, in Texas, by the rabbi there. They went into the Bet Adin, and the rabbi said, how many uh, people are in your family? He says, my, me, my wife, and eight children. He said, and what do you do for a living? He told them what he does for a living, I can't tell you. He says, how much money do you make a year? He told them how much money he makes a year. He says, please have a wonderful day. You can't afford to convert. You can't afford to convert. Send them home. That's what people see when they come to join Am Hashem. They come to join the Jewish people and they see, what do they see? Ah, it's all about the money. So what are we different than any other religion that's all about the money? How do we even have the right to complain about other people? And I'm grateful to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that He allowed us to know people like Harapelet. Look, Harapelet is not a millionaire. He thinks he's a millionaire, by the way. Harapelet, when he came to Israel in the 50s, he was in Panovich when he got married. His parents were not in Israel yet. He had to borrow an undershirt from his roommate to get married with a clean shirt. When Rabbi David Pavarsky wanted to make him a Sheva Brachot, he told Rabbi Pavarsky, I'm sorry, but my wife and I won't be able to attend the Sheva Brachot. I don't have the six shekels that it costs to get on the bus to go to your Sheva Brachot, to your house. Like, I, just I don't afford it. He didn't have. Today, Baruch Hashem, he lives in this two-bedroom, tiny little apartment in the bottom of an apartment building in Geula. And he tells me, 
Rabbi Yonatan, I'm the wealthiest man in the world. Every single night when he goes to bed, he covers himself in his blanket and he says, I thank HaKadosh Baruch that I have a blanket. He said, for 20 years in my life, I was in Yeshiva and I didn't own a blanket. I couldn't have money to sleep with something covering me. He said, I'm a wealthy man today. What do I need money for? Last time I came, what can I bring you? Nothing. I asked his wife, what can I bring you from Chutzal? He says, we have everything that we need. Can you imagine the Chachamim and the, the, the Rabbanim and the Rabbaniot that you engage with? Didn't run after your money. They weren't looking for you for donations. They didn't see you as a potential donor. I'll end with a story. I was once at a gala banquet. I can't tell you where. I was a guest there. And I came to this gala dinner. It's a big fundraising dinner. And the rabbi who was throwing the event, he was walking between the tables saying shalom to everybody. He got to the guy sitting next to me. And the guy sitting next to me says, Rabbi, I won't say his name, he says, Rabbi so-and-so, you don't have to say Shalom Aleichem to me. I don't make enough money to write you the type of check you want me to write. And what did the rabbi do? He just walked right by him. Didn't even laugh. Just walked right by him and said Shalom Aleichem to the next guy. I'm going to tell you, we can change this. Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is saying that when we count the differences, there's a mentality, and I told you in the beginning of the shiul, that has permeated the entire Jewish community. It's not just a Sephardic or Ashkenazi divide anymore. The Judaism is all about money. Everything costs. You talk to a rabbi, sign here. Make a check here. You go to get a bracha from the go sign the check here. You go to a bedin, sign the check here. Swipe your card here. Everything is about money. What does it do? What is it about Moshe Rabbeinu who said, I'm teaching you Torah the way a Kadosh Baruch Hu taught me Torah. Just like he taught me Torah for free, I will teach you Torah for free. This is something that we have to think about. Something that we have to emulate. All of us. All of us have to demand better. Bezalat Hashem, when we're able to return our integrity to our leadership and to ourselves, I'm certain that we can see so much more than just achdut. We can see the most amazing things that Kadosh ever promised us. And we'll be able to learn again from Moshe Rabbeinu, who told us, just like HaKadosh Baruch Hu, he taught me for free. I also will do the same for you. Hashem, we should merit to live to see that day. Thank you for learning with me, Hashem. We'll see you, God willing, next week, Tuesday.